You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 17th of November 2019 and this is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's show. Coming up, testimonies, tweets and Trump. We'll look at how even an impeachment process can be knocked sideways by social media and ask whether televising things really helps. As we sit here testifying, the President is attacking you on Twitter. Would you like to respond to the President's attack that everywhere you went turned bad? I actually think that um, where I've served over the years, um, I and others have demonstrably um, made things better. I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Also, do you want chips with that? Well, you can't. Why the EU is suing Colombia over French fries. Plus, Andrew Muller tells us what we know this week that we didn't last. All that in the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to your Sunday here on Monocle 24. It's Emma Nelson here and joining me in the studio, Charles Hecker from Control Risks. Charles, welcome. You're going to be uh, my my able companion for the next 30 minutes as we go through the papers and look through some of the stories which have caught our eye in the last couple of days. Very much looking forward to it. So, Charles, let us begin where, well, actually, I'd say it arguably began with O.J. Simpson, the trial by television. Much has been made of whether the introduction of cameras has helped or hindered the judicial process. Well, this week, things went even further when the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump on television was interrupted to allow one witness to respond live to Mr. Trump's tweets. As we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. Would you like to respond to the president's attack that everywhere you went turned bad? I actually think that um, where I've served over the years, um, I and others have demonstrably um, made things better. I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Well, I want to let you know, Ambassador, that some of us here take witness intimidation very, very seriously. Well, I was sort of following that and not quite understanding what was happening as I was watching it live um, and couldn't quite believe my eyes or my ears. Neither could you, by all accounts, Charles. It was astonishing. Um, I was at work on Friday and absolutely riveted by Marie uh, Jovanovich's testimony in front of the impeachment hearings. And, you know, these are televised and... It's sort of the relationship between television and politics is like a dysfunctional marriage. It's, you know, when it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's bad. And this is about establishing a narrative. And the Republicans have a narrative and the Democrats have a narrative and they clash live on television. And the ambassador who was meticulous and eloquent and composed um, and brought up in contrast to Brett Kavanaugh's television appearance in his Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Um, She's delivering her testimony and all of a sudden, as this lightning bolt from the clouds, this, this deus ex machina, President Trump live tweets his own impeachment hearing and the tweet is read out 
again, live on television at the precise moment when a U.S. Foreign Service official, a senior, high-ranking, decorated Foreign Service um, official is talking about being intimidated by the president. He comes out and intimidates her again. What he's done is potentially itself impeachable. It was immediately cast as witness tampering and witness intimidation. And that really distorted the rest of the afternoon and the content of the hearings. Exactly, because no one really paid that much attention to what followed afterwards. There were, But what astonished me is that when you followed the hearing, the the former ambassador, US ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Yovanovitch, mm. was judged as to whether she had succeeded or failed to retaliate eloquently against Donald Trump. And the general consensus was is that this woman played it absolutely beautifully. You say she was elegant, she was incredibly calm, but obviously she she had to think on her feet there. And that, that little clip that we heard there, when she said the effect is to intimidate, everybody knows exactly what she meant by that. But it suddenly became like the most astonishingly... Um, weighted television drama. I mean, how is she going to come back from this accusation from somewhere else? And it stopped being an impeachment inquiry per se, and it became an in- it became like the most dramatic telenovela, were it not to do with uh, real life. There's, it, it, it's, it, it's sort of a telenovela, it's sort of a soap opera, it's a little bit of kabuki. Um, I'm, I'm reminded there was, um, a couple of years ago, a Norwegian telenovela where the audience could interact with the characters and they could tweak the characters and the characters could tweak back with the idea of sort of uh, distorting the pro- the progress of events um, or sort of like, you know, the only way is Essex, which is sort of semi-scripted reality television. And that's what's happening to the American political process. It is now semi-scripted reality television. And, you know, ultimately... This is going to have a serious impact on the way the public's business is conducted. Um, This was a politically loaded trial or process, I should say, from the very beginning. Um, And it is now only sort of degenerating, you know, part into farce, part into drama. And this is still serious business. And I should just point out that in the rest of the United States, outside uh, the reach of Congress, television cameras are not allowed in courts. And so if you look at um, the judicial process elsewhere in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world, TV is banned. And, and I think that's probably in part for the reason that we're seeing unfold in front of us in Washington. Uh, and it's one of the reasons for the longevity of, of the art of the, of the courtroom artist um, and the sketches that they draw of people uh, giving testimony or of, of witnesses on the stand. Um, but the cameras are in Congress and there's no getting them out. We have um, a slight anomaly there here in the United Kingdom. We have the Supreme Court, hmm. which is the highest court in the land, which answers the ultimate legal questions which are posed after they've gone through all the other lower courts. And we had a few weeks ago the, the delivery of the judgment by Lady Hale into whether the British Prime Minister um, uh, Boris Johnson had illegally prorogued or, or shut down Parliament. And again, it became a judgment of Lady Hale and her delivery. And I wonder also, and it's not often that I ask this question, that Marie Jovanovic was interrupted, but none of the previous male witnesses had spoken. Lady Hale delivered her judgment and everybody was talking about 
her as a woman trying to take on the establishment. And you suddenly think, is this, a, is this the moment when actually we still go back to some pretty old-fashioned and outdated uh, judgments on women in television and women standing in the courtroom? Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, the Trump presidency, from its very beginning, beyond issues of politics, has been about issues including gender. Um, and Marie Jovanovich's um, gender, um, the fact that she is a senior woman in the State Department, um, you think has to play something in the way she gets under President Trump's skin. Um, it is widely believed that he is not a fan of powerful women, and history has borne that out, and you've seen his very chilly relationship with Angela Merkel, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, women in the world. Um, you've seen him go back and forth, and most recently, not very well, on Theresa May. Uh, and so there is something about eloquent, educated, erudite, forceful women that bug him. And you're absolutely right to point that he jumped into this hearing in a way he never has in any other hearings. And gender has something to do with it. There are also Trump finds interacting online utterly irresistible. And someone has argued this week that actually he'd probably got to a tipping point where he couldn't bear to be left out. Although he's unable or he's unwilling or for whatever reason he will not testify directly in his impeachment process. That's not to say that he doesn't want to... Have you know? Have everybody hear what he has to say. This this is what Twitter and a lot of social media platforms do for people. They embolden them to take steps that they might not otherwise take. Could you imagine if in in real life this was President Trump bursting into the House chamber on Capitol Hill in Congress, throwing the doors open and running into these sort of pillared and august venues and screaming what he wrote in that tweet. He would have to be arrested by bailiffs and hauled out of the proceedings. And he'd probably be temporarily thrown in some sort of cooling bin. It would take quite a few bailiffs to move him as well, by all accounts. Don't you reckon? Um, and so he just, he grabs the phone. He's impulsive. He cannot control these urges. And I think if we were to translate them into real life on the ground, we would understand even more just how incredibly disruptive they are. So where do we go with screened processes, screened trials, Charles. I mean, live feeds from courts and indeed from, let's say, the House of Commons here in the United Kingdom mm. are, are ostensibly the height of transparency. Yet that added drama that playing to the camera will inevitably bring can distort somewhat, although it has made an absolute superstar, an international superstar of John Burke in the last couple of months. Absolutely and argu right. arguably has made people more interested in the judicial process um, than, than, than ever before. I mean, it's, it's astonishing when you meet people in the streets from all walks of life, from all nations, they all love a little bit of John Burke. <laughs> That's right. Um, here's, I guess, I agree with you completely on the subject of transparency. And, and when it comes to transparency, more is better. And, and you know, they always say that, that sunlight is the best disinfectant, especially when it comes to politics. Um, the slippage in this and the danger, I suppose, and I believe it's already happened in the United States, is when the televisionation of politics... That's a great new word, everybody. Can we, can we do a new word here? Um, when it slips into entertainment and it goes away from actually being sort of serious news 
and the public's business. And and I think the United States is in danger of crossing that line or has, or has already crossed it. And what happens when you move from political discourse to entertainment is you have people saying things specifically because they're on television and not because they're conducting the public's business. You're listening to Monocle's House View. It's 12 minutes past nine here in London. And we move on to food and politics and law all crossing over. It's an interesting Venn diagram that we now explore here. Last year, Colombia announced that it had had its fill of European French fries, not because the nation had embraced a health kick, but because it was angry that European manufacturers were sending their fries over at a lower cost than it takes them for the potatoes to be grown and then turned into dinner. Well, Colombia imposed import tariffs, and in response, on Friday, the European Union decided to sue Colombia. This is a brilliant story, Charles. Yeah, and you thought the U.S.-China trade story was was a tough one. Here we are now on... Oh, by the way, Emma, are we, use, are we saying French fries or are we saying chips? We can say both. We're, we're an international radio station. I eat both. Well, I try not to eat either of them, but um, chips and French fries, ladies and gentlemen, if you weren't aware, are one and the same thing if you're in the U.K. And the ones that you avoid are the ones that I'm eagerly hoovering up. So... Basically, here's here's the interesting bit about this. So the EU ships something like $33.5 million worth of fried potatoes to Colombia. So that's a lot of French fries. Um, the primary source of those French fries actually is not France. The primary source of these fries is Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands. Um, Belgian chips are really, really good. They're great. Um, Dutch chips are superb. Amazing. German chips. Hit and miss, but when they're good, they're it. Okay, I'm with you on that. And so Belgian chips, where is the capital of the EU? It's in Belgium. They're taking this very personally. The Belgians are upset that their chips are being blocked from Colombia. Actually, they're not being blocked, but they're being tariffed from 3 to 8% levied on all of the bags of frozen chips coming in to Colombia. Uh, So we have a process that's begun now, and, and, and everybody these days is talking about the WTO because of Brexit, and so now the WTO is going to be adjudicating the tariff on these chips. And I have this this image in my head of, of a panel of WTO experts sort of blindfolded and tasting the chips and trying to find out which one is best and where it comes from and whether it should be taxed. Um, this is, however, serious business. The WTO has a number of food disputes in front of it. Um, the U.S. has tariffed Spanish olives because they fear they're being dumped on the American market. There's this, there's this wonderful expression, isn't there? Dumping, which is one of those ideas which it takes a little bit of time to, to, to get your head around, but once you get it, you, you never you never leave it. They're not physically dumping olives in, in different countries. <laughs> it's that idea when you flood a market that you probably shouldn't flood um, with something that is probably cheaper than it shouldn't be, than it should be. Um, and, and as a result, it throws competition. That's right. Dumping is, um, among other things, a specific trade term that often refers to just piling a product onto a market, usually when you're selling it at below the cost of producing it. And that's, what's Columbia, that's what Colombia is saying about chips coming from Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands, that they're being sold at a loss just to get rid of them. There is apparently, according to the coverage of this issue, there is apparently a glut of chips. So let's send them to Colombia as cheaply as possible. Or to, or to Midori House, uh, Dorset Street, W1, London. Uh, <laughs> and the interesting thing about this is it all goes back to the idea of the European Union's co- common agricultural policy, which is a an, an absolute 
integral part of the way that the European Union does business. It is also something that has annoyed the British so much for years and years and years. And it is one of those ideas that what you do is you um, is you are paid to reach certain uh, quotas of, produ- of producing, whether it's butter or milk or French fries or whatever. Um, and it is a very controversial idea. And people are saying that this action that's being taken by the European Union could backfire on it because it could lead to the WTO saying actually it's your common it's your it's your it's your common agricultural policy which is leading to overproduction which is leading to you giving Colombia all these french fries i mean it's an absolutely mad thought that the that the common agricultural policy could be felled by Colombia over french fries that's right um, i hadn't thought about it that way but you're absolutely right the european common agricultural policy is one of the most globally argued bits of legislation in the european union because essentially it makes european agricultural products cheaper than agricultural products all over the world and the cap has been blamed for distorting markets in Colombia and all over Africa where agriculture is not able to really sort of take off because they're competing with subsidized agriculture products from the European Union. So this is something to follow. Um, WTO processes are not known for their lightning speed, um, but we've got 60 days for the first phase of adjudication of this question, and then it may go to this panel of judges. And so this is one to watch because you're right, you never know what it is that's going to bring down a piece of legislation. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson and joining me in the studio, Charles Hecker from Control Risks. In a moment, we'll look at the international papers. But first, looking back at the week that was in news headlines and what we might have learned from them, here's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that some people never will. Here in the UK, Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage made the widely expected announcement that his glorious storming of the bastions of British democracy next month will be scaled back to an apologetic tapping on the drawbridge. The Brexit Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. This was news to many Brexit Party candidates who had paid £100 each even to have their applications considered and had made further investments in their suddenly cancelled campaigns. Money they could have spent on snake oil, magic beans or part shares in Tower Bridge. But we learned that, despite everything, one select strata of British people is actually enjoying this election. People who make a living making fun of British politics, for whom this represents a bounteous cornucopia of material. Here's Patrick Kidd from The Times, appearing on The Briefing on Monday. Well, you never know what you're going to get really on an election, and, and something disastrous can always happen. You just can't predict it. And the fact that Boris Johnson is now leader of the Conservatives rather than Theresa May that makes that more likely. The 2017 election may ran a presidential sort of personality-led election campaign, not realising she didn't have a personality. And so actually it was very, very dull to cover. She didn't use Boris uh, at all. And whatever people may think of Boris's politics, he generates news, he's very fun. And so during the referendum campaign in 2016, I have lots of his, um, images of, of Boris kissing fish and things like that. On one occasion in, in uh, Dartford, where there was a big lorry with their slogan on the side, and uh, he leapt behind the cab and his press officer said, he's not going to drive it, he's not going to drive it. Then the engine started, he's definitely not going to drive it. Said, oh, God, he's driving. And Boris careened off. And 
he is always going to have something to say, something worth writing about, but you just never have a clue, and nor do his handles, that's the fun of it. We did not learn, however, what is in a report by Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee looking at Russian interference in recent British elections, and possibly more significantly, referendums. The report has been in the possession of 10 Downing Street since last month and cleared for publication. The government has decided not to release it until after the coming election, however. Former Conservative Justice Secretary David Gork, who chaired the committee which wrote the report, had some distinctly non-party line views on this. Perhaps this is why he is now running as an independent and urging people not to vote for his old party. I just think it is too much of a risk for the economy if we are going to find ourselves crashing out uh, without a deal at the end of 2020. And I don't think that the Conservative Party is being straight with the British people as to the choices that we face and the implications of those choices. On the Atlantic's other shore, we learned that the impeachment proceedings investigating the conduct of US President Donald Trump are going to be as edifying a spectacle as might have been imagined. I want to emphasize at the outset that while I am aware that the committee has requested my testimony as part of impeachment proceedings, I am not here to take one side or the other or to advocate for any particular outcome of these proceedings. The first witnesses to testify, stolid, serious career diplomats, did their best but could not quite disguise the impression that they are, in essence, narrating a clown car demolition derby. Elsewhere, we learned that the melancholy fraternity of exiled leaders has swelled by one as ousted Bolivian President Evo Morales was granted asylum in Mexico, a popular destination for the unhorsed and unwanted, as the historian Alex von Tunzelman reminded us on Tuesday's briefing. We've had, of course, Trotsky there, Jacopo Arbenz from Guatemala. Fidel Castro was there for a long time. In fact, it's where he met Che Guevara, um, was in a house party in Mexico City over a large bowl of spaghetti. And even the Shah of Iran was there for a while. All sorts of people have been there. Aficionados of obscure, if not outright chaotic, diplomatic spats were agog to learn that Kosovo is increasingly the victim of finger-steepling Serbian machinations to reduce its coterie of allies. Ghana became the 16th country which had recognised Kosovo to decide that it would recognise Kosovo no longer. Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay explained why on Thursday's briefing. These derecognitions that have taken place are bringing Kosovo down towards the 50% uh, mark of UN member states which recognise Kosovo's independence. We learned this week that even the most brutal demonstrations of the elemental furies will not teach people what they are determined not to learn. In Australia, an area larger than Cyprus has been incinerated by bushfires, shocking not only in their scale, but their timing. By historical standards, it is far, far too early in the summer for this kind of thing, though Australia's Deputy Prime Minister is among those who'd rather see climate change as someone else's invention than his problem. We've had fires in Australia since, well, from since time began. And what people need now is a little bit of sympathy, understanding, and, and real assistance. They they need help. They need shelter. Not but, the but why is it some, why is well, it wrong to the, ask the, those questions? Well, they don't need the ravings of some pure, enlightened, and woke capital city greenies at this time. Mm-hmm. 
And in Venice, with due acknowledgement that they were always kind of asking for trouble by building a city in an actual lagoon, we learned that local authorities have somehow managed to be unprepared for Venice's canals ending up in Venice's houses, restaurants and museums. Here's Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella. A conversation about building a tidal barrier to protect the city began decades ago. That project, called Mose, is still far from completion, marred by overspending and corruption scandals. And to go back to where we came in in a week, another week, in which those who complain about being governed by elites have done quite a good job of demonstrating why we were asking elites to govern us in the first place, the journalist Joel Stein told us why he's written a book, Defending Those Who Probably Need Defending Least. I am not talking about rich people. I'm talking about the intellectual elite. So these are the people who care less about having a yacht than giving a TED talk. These are, I think, the Monica listeners. So I'm talking about people who care much more about ideas than gold plating everything in their house. And with that sweep of the horizon from the ivory tower in the metropolitan bubble for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew. I always think that he's playing the piano as well as presenting that little item. Uh, this is Monocle's House View on a chilly Sunday morning here in London. I'm Emma Nelson and joining me in the studio to go through the newspapers is Charles Hecker. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you. Right, so we have a little bit of a task ahead of us because most of the British English language papers have uh, stories about uh, middle-aged men who are accused of being involved in uh, relationships with women that perhaps they shouldn't have been. I'm speaking about Prince Andrew and Boris Johnson. Let's just politely dodge those front pages, because I think the world doesn't need to hear any more about them. Uh, that's me making a firm editorial <laughs> stance on this one. So what else is in the papers today, Charles? So we went to the Financial Times, um, which has also managed to sidestep the bulk of those sorts of issues. The Financial Times tells us that Barclays Bank did a survey of 400 multimillionaires. I'm still waiting for the call. I, you know, just they, they, they lift me out. I filled in my form very quickly. Right, online. Um, they did a survey of 400 multimillionaires across nine countries. And 75% of those 400 multimillionaires believe that philanthropy is the job of people who are even wealthier than themselves. So basically, the headline on this story in the FT is that millionaires expect billionaires to plug charity gaps uh, and basically pity the poor multimillionaire who's feeling a bit stretched these days and isn't able to sponsor public goods and is looking only to the super rich and the mega rich to step in and help out where the public sector falls short. It's an astonishing story because it completely it blew my mind in terms of what a multi, multi at what point charity stops beginning at home and when you start to actually realize it uh, you know if you have a bit of cash you should maybe share it uh, unless I, I think the multimillionaire was 5 million pounds or more in the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Hong Kong, Singapore and India. Um, some might argue that five million is not actually that much in terms of the way that the world is going. I mean, you can get a three bedroom flat down the road for that here in London at the moment. But, but I'd like but to know how bad it is to have five million dollars. Exactly. Be honest with you. Let's, let, it's one of those things. Let's try and test it as hard as we can. Yeah. Because what do you do when you don't have those those philanthropists. There's been an awful lot of criticism of the use of possibly arguably inappropriate sponsors for the arts, uh, petroleum companies, drug companies. Um, but where are the companies 
the large foundations which are filling the gap being left by those organisations which are being kicked out. You don't hear of large fintech companies sponsoring a gallery. You don't hear of large um, technology companies saying, don't worry, there's a Leonardo da Vinci exhibition coming up. Let me chuck a couple of million towards it. It doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't see sort of, you know, the uber wing of, of you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, bearing in mind that a lot of the tech giants, some of them at least, are still loss-making. Uh, what's interesting about this is I started to think about the exact opposite end of the spectrum in philanthropy or at least in charity. And you'll recall that there was a debate by the Bank of England about whether they should stop minting pennies. And charities around the UK said, please don't stop making pennies, whatever you do, because we're going to get hit on our bottom line. People take the pennies out of their pockets and they throw them into the collection jars to support local charities and to support, to support local initiatives. And then think about people who are donating 10, 5, you know, 5, 10, 20 pounds or dollars to their favorite political candidates now that we're all in um, election seasons all around the world. Um, and how the average person is actually digging into their pocket to do what they can to help out, understanding that we're in a period of austerity on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and so... Um, you know, it, it, it's 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 really sort of gobsmacking to to see that there is a bracket of individual that is having difficulty um, sponsoring public goods and public works, and is turning to people who are even wealthier than themselves Charles, to do it. Charles Hacker, thank you very much indeed. And I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there because that's all we have time for today's program. Many thanks to our supervising producer Ben Ryland, our researcher Samia Hannes, and our studio manager Nora Huell. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah.